Hi, I'm Conrad Marshall, and from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Good Weekend Talks, a magazine for your ears in which we take a deep dive into the definitive stories of the day. Every week you can download new episodes in which top journalists from across our newsrooms host conversations with the people capturing the imagination of Australia right now. This week, we speak with British TV presenter and doctor Michael Mosley, whose brush with type 2 diabetes introduced him to intermittent fasting and led to a documentary, Eat, Fast and Live Longer, which helped popularise the 5-2 dieting regimen around the world. Mosley is in Australia right now, researching sleep and also for a national speaking tour this month. And hosting this chat with him about everything from hunger as the driver of intelligence to unlocking the power of push-ups and squats in the morning is Kerry O'Brien, a senior culture writer with The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Thanks, Conrad. And welcome, Michael. Great to talk with you. And great to talk with you. Indeed, we have met before, haven't we? Absolutely. We had a lovely luncheon for a lunch with interview. Uh, although the funny thing is I remember you ordering and I was slightly hungry afterwards, but I thought that was uh, a <laughs> sign that your fasting must have impacted on your uh, appetite. But in good news, I have actually done fasting since then and lost last year about 10 kilos. So, wow. Uh, Testimony to it working, yeah. Brilliant. I'm delighted to hear that. Always, <laughs> it sounds a bit like, like to hear good news, exactly. Indeed. Well, you famously created the diet when you were looking down the barrel of having type 2 diabetes. I wonder if you can talk us through your process with that. Sure. This was actually back in 2012, so it is 11 years now. And I actually went to see my doctor about something completely different. I had a skin lesion. I was slightly worried it might be a cancer or something like that. And she had a look at it. She said, it's fine. Said we ought to do some blood tests while you're here. Did some blood tests and then rang me up a while later to say, look, your blood sugars are really high. Need to come in for more tests. Did that. She said, I've got bad news for you. You have type 2 diabetes, which my dad had developed about the same age that I was then. Because I'm now... 65. So then I was uh, just about 60, uh, 55. And uh, she said, we can start your medication. And I thought, no thanks, because I'd kind of see what happened to my dad. He developed complications of diabetes despite being on medication and had died at the age of 74. So I didn't want to go down that road. And I decided to, instead, um, as you do, to make a documentary in which I could see if I could cure myself of diabetes something that I was assured was impossible. I mean, what I had was type 2 diabetes, which is the older, later onset, you know, and often associated with being a little bit uh, too heavy around the waist. And if I look at photographs of myself at the time, uh, I clearly am a little bit overweight, although I saw myself as being in perfect shape at that time. (laughs) But I ended up basically uh, making a documentary called Eat Fast, Live Longer. And um, in the course of making that, I discovered something called, which I had no idea about called intermittent fasting and calorie restriction and things like that. And um, that led me to losing about nine kilos on a new diet I invented called the Fighter Diet. And uh, as a result of that, my blood sugars went back entirely to normal, where they have stayed ever since, I'm delighted to say. So um, as far as I'm concerned, I pretty well cured myself of type 2 diabetes, although um, I suspect, in fact, I'm certain if I put the weight back on, it will return. So it's kind of lurking there somewhere in the background, but that's kind of where the 5-2 diet came from, and also my sort of enthusiasm about intermittent fasting, but also about type 2 diabetes and things you can do to keep yourself in good shape as you get older. And presumably you continue to practice the 5-2 
fasting? Is that part of your kind of life now? Uh, not so much, because actually I saw it as a sort of transition thing. So I did it really in order to lose the weight, and then after that, I do it occasionally. Uh, when I put a bit of weight back on, because that happens, you have Christmas or something like that. But most of the time, no, most of the time I'm actually just sort of sticking to a broadly Mediterranean-style diet. Uh, and I do a little bit of time-restricted eating sometimes, which is a kind of another variant of intermittent fasting which has become very popular. It's quite confusing because intermittent fasting covers a whole range of things and that's kind of one of the things I'm going to be talking about when um, I'm doing my show in Australia, kind of where the research lies now. But time-restricted eating, which is in many ways a sort of more fashionable thing going on, is where you just cut the number of hours within which you eat. So it could be known as um, 16-8 or 14-10 or something like that. Um, so, and that comes with different sort of benefits, but, uh, I, I try different things. I'm, I'm always endlessly curious. So, uh, I've also more recently, um, had a go at the keto diet because I wrote a book about that. And, um, I was surprised, uh, again, rather like I was with intermittent fasting, how much interesting research there is around keto, which I've always regarded as a bit mad and a bit maverick. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's been around for a long time. It was originally invented more than 100 years ago uh, to treat people with epilepsy. And we're seeing uh, lots of benefits for it and things, you know, quite apart from weight loss. So um, having been a skeptic, I'm now really quite enthusiastic about it. But again, I see it as a sort of short-term thing. I, I don't think I want to be on a keto diet for the rest of my life. I do think the healthiest diet on the planet is broadly a Mediterranean-style diet. But I think there are ways to kind of, um, you know, get to that. So if you're like me, you're a bit overweight, you've got type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure or something like that, then something like the 5 2 diet or, you know, the, the fasting and keto is a good way to shed the weight. And then maintenance is really about trying to stick to a kind of broadly healthy diet from there on in with a bit of time-restricted eating thrown in. I remember being delighted to hear that in terms of the uh, intermittent fasting that sleeping counts. <laughs> and I think a lot of people seem to have done that, sort of pushed out having breakfast, which we have grown up with the idea that, you know, breakfast like a king, which you have debunked, I think, in some of your writing. It, it, that's a myth. We don't need to focus particularly on breakfast. It's more of a holistic picture, I guess. It is. And um, obviously some people love breakfast. I actually happen to love breakfast. Um, whereas other people, they wake up, they're not at all hungry, they don't want to eat. Um, and it doesn't seem any good reason why uh, you should do so. The idea that breakfast is the most important meal of the day was actually a kind of PR invention uh, by the Kellogg's Corporation back in <laughs> back in the 1920s. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and uh, you, when you start rooting around looking at some of the origins of many things we believe, it turns out there is some giant corporation behind them. So, mm. you had a PR message. So, I, I do like um, investigating these things and debunking these things at the same time. Absolutely. I wonder, have you been surprised about the success of the the various diets you've espoused? The Fast 800 and the 5-2, I guess, are the ones people would commonly know. I guess absolutely gobsmacked because uh, when I was originally thinking, I'd um, lost the weight. I'd made the documentary. It was very successful. Um, a lot of people wrote to me and contacted me and say, how do I do the 5-2 diet? And I said, well, it's really easy. You basically try and cut down to about 800 calories. And they said, well, what? Are what's in those 800 calories. So I eventually got round to writing a book with Mimi Spencer and it became a sort of massive bestseller and uh, it sort of spread by word of mouth. And since then, um, I've sort of refined it, um, added to it, changed it a little bit. Originally, it was 600 calories, but uh, and that was based mainly on rat studies. 
Uh, but the rats wrote to me and complained they were getting really hungry. Uh, uh, actually, actually, what really happened was that the science moved on. Eight hundred calories seems a much eight hundred to a thousand calories seems much more doable um, on a sort of you know regular basis. If you like, if you're looking to lose weight, it's low enough to lead to significant weight loss, but high enough that you can get all the nutrients in if you're eating the right food. So um, that was one refinement, and another is that with the fast eight hundred is if you're suitable, um, why not start on rapid weight loss where you eat 800 calories or thereabouts every day? And that's based, again, on some pretty big studies. So uh, the Fast 800 program is essentially, you know, you can do it fast if you want, or you can do the 5 to approach, and then you move to what I call the way of life. So I see it as a sort of a, a program which is in transition, uh, but which also I am constantly modifying in light of the evidence, as uh, more and more studies are done, we learn more, um, I, I modify things. And does it hark back to a state of, or a period of time, I guess, where we really didn't have, you know, a cupboard or a fridge to wander to and open up? It is something about tricking your body, or not even tricking your body, I guess, it's feeling hunger and allowing your body to get to that point. Is that correct? That's part of the... Yes, absolutely. Um, indeed, you know, once upon a time, um, our ancestors would have been faced with feast and famine. And there's uh, one of my scientific heroes is a guy called Professor Mark Matson, who's based at the National Institutes of Health in the US. And he's the guy who really introduced me to intermittent fasting and to the benefits of it, and who indeed um, first suggested that I might like to try it for a couple of days a week, and that's where the 5-2 diet was born. And a lot of his research has been around the uh, neurological benefits because he his particular interest is Alzheimer's and depression. And he's got some quite compelling evidence showing that intermittent fasting is a good way to uh, kind of boost your brain. And uh, the way it works is when you're, you know, cutting your calories for a few days a week, uh, that leads to a boost in a hormone called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And uh, that seems to be like a fertilizer for your brain cells. And the way Mark explained it to me, he said, look, back in the day, if you're living in a cave, uh, you don't need to be that smart if food is to hand. It's when there's no food to hand. That's when you have to kind of remember how to go hunting, do things. That's when you become alert. And so he said that is the moment when uh, your brain needs to be firing. And so hunger is in many ways a sort of uh, a driver of intelligence, or at least historically it would have been. And as I said, he's got a mechanism, which is the production of BDNF. So absolutely. And uh, that's where keto also comes into it. When you cut back on calories for a bit and you fast for a bit, then you push your body into uh, producing more of these ketone bodies, which um, are derived from your fat cells. And they seem to be quite good for the brain. So uh, there's quite a lot of complex and interesting stuff going on uh, biochemically, neurologically and things like that, which is, I have to say, I love this stuff. I absolutely love the scientific detail. I like talking to people about this stuff. So there is a moment when I need a, I know I need to shut up and let other people uh, talk, <laughs> but uh, I, I still fired up. Uh, 11 years ago, I would never have dreamt that this sort of um, thing would take off in such a way. And intermittent fasting, all those things, have absolutely exploded both scientifically and also in the public mind. And um, mm. I'm kind of uh, really fortunate that I get to talk to all the leading scientists uh, all the time about this, and they're kind of happy to talk to me as well because they, they know I'll respect their work. Mm. It's fascinating to think that there might be benefits for, um, I mean, dementia or Alzheimer's 
is one of the fastest growing diseases in the Western world and we're facing some sort of epidemic of it as our population ages. So that, um, gosh, that really sounds like uh, great news. Would that be something you'd recommend kind of before you get dementia? It can actually help stave it off as well as I think, treat it potentially? I think the best evidence uh, basically lies if you have high blood pressure, if you have uh, high blood sugars, type 2 diabetes, if you have high blood fats, uh, then all of these are linked to a much increased risk of developing dementia. Uh, that some people describe um, Alzheimer's disease or, uh, as uh, type 3 diabetes. We know that if you have type 2 diabetes, which I had, then that roughly doubles your chance that you will go on to develop dementia. So one thing I can tell you is that if you are significantly overweight and you also have these metabolic problems, uh, then getting rid of them is a really good way of reducing your risk of developing uh, dementia later in life. Whether there is an added benefit uh, by the way you lose the weight, i.e. by 5-2 diet or something like that, we don't really know. Although Mark Matson is currently conducting a big study on people who are at risk of uh, cognitive decline. They're basically on the edge. They're already, they're, you know, they're showing signs of memory loss and things like that. So he's kind of looking um, at whether putting them on a you know, some form of intermittent fasting would benefit them. Or indeed, um, other people are looking at whether people are putting people on a keto diet would benefit them. But um, the one thing we know with certainty is that if you have metabolic disorders then and you can get rid of them, then that's the best way of protecting your brain. But on top of that, we also know that things like, uh, you know, regular exercise is another way to boost your BDNF. And uh, a third way is to keep on challenging yourself particularly when you hit middle age, like uh, learning a new language or taking up ballroom dancing or (laughs) maybe joining a choir, just doing something uh, (laughs) which is kind of different. And uh, I I like that as well because I like the idea that there are lots of different ways in which you can stimulate your little grey cells. Mm. Even things like you've said, uh, standing on one leg, for example, or I think was it you brushing your teeth kind of with your opposite hand, things that I guess challenge you cognitively uh, and physically, um, it doesn't have to be some sort of you know complete program, does it? It can be incremental things. Uh, I wonder if there are any sort of, you know, just a handful of tips in terms of health that you can can talk us through. I mean, being sedentary is a big issue for a lot of people in the Western world. I guess getting more active uh, seems to be the advice uh, across the board. But anything in addition to that? Yeah. I'm, I actually, I don't know if you've heard it, but I do a podcast called Just One Thing, which is hugely popular on uh, BBC Radio, but you can also hear it around the world. And each one of those is one thing you could do, which um, can really boost your health in quite unexpected ways. And they range from doing things like some press-ups and squats first thing in the morning. Um, I do them then with my wife, Claire, uh, because we encourage each other to do so. And we know that resistance exercises are really good for your muscles, but they're also really good for your brain. There's some wonderful research um, from the University of South Wales, which shows that particularly the press-up and the squat because when you're doing those, uh, you're going through a vertical motion. So you're going up and down. And when you do that, you get these big surges of blood to the brain. And that, in turn, has leads to the release of BDNF, this magical fertilizer for the brain, but seems to be terribly good for it. So as well as building up your thighs, your, the muscles in your bottom, and your, uh, you know, your biceps, and also on, you know, uh, making sure you're your spine is in good shape and your core is good mm. in shape. 
then uh, the press up and the squat really and that's kind of what i like to do i like to be specific because i could tell you to go and do some exercise and that's completely meaningless but if perhaps i tell you get out of bed first thing in the morning do 10 press ups and 10 squats or as many as you can manage and gradually build up uh, then that is much more achievable and the reason i do it first thing is because i know if i don't do it then uh, i never will and it's mm. about having a trigger something you have to do anyway which you're going to attach this new habit to. So that's one thing I would really strongly recommend um, anyone have a go at. You mentioned uh, brushing your teeth uh, while standing on one leg. Uh, that improves your balance. You have to brush your teeth. Uh, if you're you know, semi-decent human being, you're going to be brushing your teeth. <laughs> uh, and you normally, you should be doing it twice a day, ideally for about two minutes. So that's when I practice standing on one leg, 30 seconds one leg, 30 seconds the other leg. And on top of, you know, the benefits which come from improving your balance and, uh, you know, balance is one of those things which we ignore and pay very little attention to until we start falling over. Um, as well as that, when you brush your teeth thoroughly and you floss, then that reduces inflammation in the mouth. And there's quite a lot of um, studies now showing that the bacteria which kind of escape from your gums, from gingivitis, uh, they in turn can trigger heart disease and dementia. So when you're brushing your teeth, you're not only preserving your beautiful pearly teeth, and, uh, but you're also giving your brain a boost. And uh, I like that. At the same time, you're standing on one leg. So, hey, you're getting you know, home. <laughs> and all of it's taking less than two minutes of your day. So uh, win, win, win. <laughs> Thanks for your buck. I wonder, you're heading to Adelaide to look at some research around sleep. And I know you've talked about sleep quite a bit. You're a chronic insomniac yourself. At one stage, I heard kiwi fruit was uh, <laughs> sort of a bonus. Does food have a big role to play in terms of our sleep patterns? Uh, yeah, it does indeed. Yes. Yeah, so I'm doing this three-part series called Australia's Health Revolution, which I'll be filming uh, and uh, the idea is we're going to take 10 brave Australians who currently suffer from a range of um, sleep disorders, some common, some less common. And we're going to, I'm going to try with the help of some uh, Australian sleep experts uh, to uh, sort them out and hopefully sort myself out. In fact, I'm really looking forward to trying something which I've read a lot about, which, which I've never tried, which is called sleep restriction therapy. And the idea there is you deliberately reduce the amount of time you spend in bed. Because what you're really trying to do, if you're an insomniac like me, what you want to do is you want to, you know, it's not the hours you spend in bed, but the hours you spend in bed asleep. So you've got to retrain your brain. Once you become an insomniac, it's very difficult because you treat bed a bit like, you know, uh, something to be feared. But what you've got to do is train your brain to associate bed with sleep and sex and nothing else. Um, uh -huh. And um, so one of the ideas between sleep restriction therapy or behind it is, the, uh, you start by cutting the amount of time you spend in bed to six hours. So you get up wow. at six in the morning, you go to bed at midnight, and you do that until your sleep efficiency, which is the amount of time you spend in bed asleep, goes up to about 90%. And when that happens, then you are allowed to increase your time in bed by a quarter of an hour. So you go to bed a quarter of an hour earlier, and so on and so on, until hopefully you are, you know, you've got insomnia sorted. This call can take up to six to eight weeks. So I've never done it. I've written about it. I've been enthusiastic about it because the research clearly shows it's very good for insomnia, but I've never tried it. So uh, here's my mm. opportunity to give it a go. 
Goodness, fingers crossed there'll be insomniacs galore out there delighting if it uh, if it does work. That's great. Um, the fact that you've got Australians volunteering to be part of this program reminds me about how you, I think, started as, um, I guess, almost like a human guinea pig for testing different things. Um, you were inspired by Australian scientists in Perth, I believe, and that was one of your first documentaries for the BBC was about their work, which finally was recognised after many years. I wonder if you can give us a quick snapshot shot of of that scenario yep no it's a brilliant brilliant story this is professor he was a professor then he was dr barry marshall and robin warren and barry is a young gastroenterologist in perth western australia and this is in the 1980s at a time when gastric ulcers uh, were very common and were caused by stress or so people believed and uh, the drug companies produced a drug called Zantac and or other ones which would reduce the acid production of the stomach. And they were fine as long as you took them. When you took them, the ulcers went away, but if you stopped taking them, they came back. So this was the ideal drug if you're a pharmaceutical company because they made squillions. I mean, this was at the time the best-selling drug of all time. Um, and Barry is a young gastroenterologist enterologist and he becomes convinced because he's doing autopsies on um, people who you know who've died after the gastric ulcers have burst and he becomes convinced along with this pathologist it's actually caused by a previously unknown organism called helicobacter pylori which they managed to grow up but the thing is they can't persuade other people of it and they can't find an animal that will be infected by it so barry decides to knock it back himself um, so he basically, he doesn't tell his wife, he doesn't tell the hospital. He uh, <laughs> does have himself gastroscopes. He, uh, you know, he gets an endoscope put down to check his stomach is normal. And then he knocks it back. He gets uh, a technician to brew up a vat of the stuff. And then he just knocks it back. Swelled in one go, said the bloke when I interviewed him. <laughs> uh, and a few, you know, a few days later, he began to vomit blood into the toilet. And he told me it was one of the best moments of his life because wow. he, it, it was really working. He had himself, you know, endoscoped again, and um, there he was had the beginnings of an ulcer, and there were helicobacter swarming around it, and then he took a handful of antibiotics and basically cured himself. And uh, that was in the 80s, and I made a film with him in the 19, early 90s, because I loved the story, and I loved the fact that, you know, he was so brave and so bold, but at that time, most people still regarded him as a complete lunatic. So uh, I made the documentary with him It was uh, and with the ABC, and it was called Ulcer Wars, and I interviewed lots of gastroenterologists around the world who said this is complete, utter rubbish. There is no way that some non-entity in Perth, Western Australia, has come up with something, you know, which has eluded me all my career. Revolutionary. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and yet, you know, uh, 10 years later, they go on and win the Nobel Prize for Medicine and transform the lives of millions and millions of people around the planet. So um, after that, I became uh, obsessed by doing self-experiments myself, which is how I went down that road. So I, I went all to Barry Marshall and Robin Warren. And when I'm in Perth, I love catching up with them because, uh, mm. yeah, it, it's such a fabulous story of bravery, of endeavor, and really a massive scientific revolution, which, as I said, utterly transformed. Because before that, if you had peptidases, they were miserable. And it turns out that mm. this uh, bacteria can also cause gastric cancer, which was one of the commonest cancers in Australia and is no more because uh, a lot of the people who had these symptoms were able to eradicate them by taking a specific um, antibiotic regime. So all in all, mm. uh, one of the finest documentaries I ever made. And um, I'm so it was such a great, great moment when we did it. 
Mm, extraordinary story. It's a salient reminder that medicine is in lots of ways an inexact science. We know a lot, don't we? But there's so much yet uh, to learn. I wonder if you have any thoughts about what might be the next health issue. I mean, weight and diet seems to have been around for a long time as a focus. Um, I mentioned earlier dementia and um, diseases of the brain as we age, but are there any things you can sort of see in your sort of crystal ball as, as, as issues to look out for? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things which emerged out of uh, Barry Marshall and Robin Warren's work was an interest in gut bacteria. And so now we see, you know, uh, everyone talks about microbiome, about kimchi and sauerkraut and probiotics and prebiotics and uh, stuff like that. But that has been, you know, within the last 20 years, that has utterly transformed our understanding of a huge range of things. So there are these microbes in our gut. There are about 100 trillion down there. They weigh a couple of kilos, uh, but they can also influence our weight, our appetite, our brains, our immune system. Uh, People are now doing fecal transplants. They're exploring all the different ways in which gut bacteria are altering how we think, feel, and act. And that has been a massive revolution, which is still in its infancy. Because these days we can Mm. now measure... Uh, you know, you can send off a poo sample and people can tell you what sort of things are in your gut. But we still don't really know what they're doing down there and the complexity of it. But we do know that they are master chemists, uh, those little bacteria, that they can transform, uh, you know, the food we eat into a whole range of fascinating chemicals, many of which mimic uh, chemicals we already have. So the bacteria in your gut are busy churning out dopamine, which in the brain is associated with happiness. Uh, they're busy uh, manipulating your immune system in ways we're only beginning to understand. So clearly, they have a strong influence on things like autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, MS, and things like that. So manipulating the gut bacteria seems to be a whole new way of improving health. And again, that kind of links in with weight loss, because we know that some gut bacteria are better at conserving energy, some are better at driving uh, appetite, at inducing cravings. Uh, Some really recent research shows uh, why eating fiber-rich food, particularly food which is rich in a fiber called inulin, uh, that boosts levels of a particular bacteria, which in turn uh, seems to be good at suppressing cravings for things like chocolate. So if you Uh are a chocolate-holic, which I am, (laughs) uh, then shoving in some inulin seems to be quite effective, and I found that's true. uh, And um, so you begin to understand the mechanism. And so I think that's wonderful. Again, that's another of the big things is the benefits of rapid weight loss if you do it properly clearly rapid weight loss is not great if you do it badly if you just eat cabbage all day or something like that but if you do it properly Mm. there are a lot of big studies now um showing the benefits of doing so and uh you know i i love this stuff as well it's kind of the general advice you go to your doctor and they say eat less and move more which is a bit like going Mm. to the tennis pro you know you want to get better at tennis you go to see the tennis pro and they say hit the ball really hard into the corner and win more points (laughs) Uh, it's, it's just utterly useless as a guide mm. to how you do it, which is why, as I said, I like really specific and detailed advice, behavioral tips, changes, it's stuff. How do you maintain it once you've lost the weight? Mm. What is it? That's the big issue, isn't it? Sustaining 100%. it. Yeah. And yep. it's absolutely possible to do, but uh, it it's, it's detailed and it's, it's hard. You know, changing habits is really, mm. really hard. And that's, again, really interesting because we've got these new drugs uh, which have just come along and mm. are being hailed as great, you know, hope. And they're certainly very promising. In many ways, they are better than anything I've seen before. 
and they work right. by mimicking uh, how your body uh, tells your brain that you're full. So they are uh, a mimetic. But the trouble is when you stopped injecting yourself with this stuff, then, you know, unless you've done something mm-hmm. about your lifestyle, the weight will just come back on again. So I'm not against, yes. you know, uh, medication. I'm not against stuff like that. But I do think uh, you have to have a kind of a longer and a, a bigger plan for your life. Mm. You mentioned dopamine and the gut, and that is fascinating. Goodness, if we can harness, you know, probiotics or whatever it is that would help treat depression or address anything in that sphere, that would be incredible. I feel like I've heard a bit about the relationship between the the brain and the gut, but not so much in terms of mood. You were on track to be a psychologist, I think, going way, way back, weren't you? What disillusioned you about psychology or psychiatry? It was psychiatry, I guess, because at the time it was mainly about managing decline, if you like. Uh, The psychiatrists uh, generally were prescribing drugs and the drugs kind of worked really well for some people and not for others. And the trouble is often when you took the drugs away, um, the you know, patient relapsed. So I got a bit disillusioned with it and I sort of thought, I'll go away from medicine, I'll come back. I'll spend a few years doing something else. That's how I ended up in television. Uh, uh-huh. But that was a long time ago. But you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the, you know, the great revolution at the moment, or at least the great fear at the moment is fear, anxiety, depression, mental health issues, which seem to be massively on the rise. And that's mm. something I'm really, really interested in, particularly in areas like the impact of food um, on the brain. And there's Professor Felice Jacker down in Melbourne at the Food and Mood Centre there who's doing some brilliant work. She and her team were pretty much the first to demonstrate uh, that if you take people who suffer from moderate to severe depression and you change their diet, you change them from following a typical Australian diet, high in ultra-processed foods, and you put them on a Mediterranean-style diet, that around a third of them were able to come off all medication. Basically, their mood improved so much. And um, she and her team are exploring why that is. But Australia is right at the forefront of this research. And there's a whole new term called psychobiotics, which covers the link between what is going on in your gut and your brain. And as I said, it is a hugely encouraging area of research because... Uh, they found again with, again, another Australian study, you take a student suffering from anxiety and you change their diet. And within two weeks, you can see profound changes. And uh, in many ways, it's, you know, it's just getting rid of the junk food and eating, uh, you know, more oily fish, olive oil, nuts, uh, greens, the sort of stuff which we know is good for you. Uh, but because we also know it's good for your gut, we're beginning to understand the mechanisms by which it's having mm. this impact. So uh, that has been a massive rev- and ongoing revolution. And so it's about mm. it's about how the brain reacts to the food we eat. And, you know, psychotherapy, drugs, medication, we know how those work. What is new is exploring the inflamed brain the way that inflammation, Mm. chronic inflammation, leads to depression and the way in which what you eat impacts the bacteria in your gut who produce these chemicals which travel in your blood, which in turn, you know, help to reduce anxiety and depression. So, uh, yeah, I think that is is absolutely fascinating and that's something I'm going to be talking a lot about. And indeed, I think I'm probably going to write a book about that sometime soon because it it interests Mm. me so much. Uh, And Mm. it's so 
important. It sounds almost too simple. I mean, it makes me think about go and spend some time in nature and you'll feel better. But it's actually true, isn't it? I mean, there is science behind that. It's not just, you know, kind of a, you know, an easy route. It's scientifically proven to do you good. So there is clear logic in diet affecting your mood, but um, interesting that that can extend into even kind of extreme depression, you're saying. Yes, well, uh, the studies were done with people with moderate to severe depression who were on heavy medication. Um, So it's not like they were just treating a few people who were a bit anxious. These were people who Mm. were really quite seriously depressed. So I think that is really fascinating. And as I said, I also find it really interesting the extent to which uh, the growth in anxiety and depression amongst young people could be linked to the you know increasing consumption of ultra-processed food. Because we know that this junk mm. food is having a bad effect on our gut microbiome. It's leading to generalized inflammation. And so the link to the brain is you know really quite plausible. And I think mm. once you start producing a mechanism, you do studies, you produce the evidence, then doctors will take it seriously and they'll do something about it. So I think it's still seen as something, I don't know how many psychiatrists practice it, I suspect not that many, because it's still seen as a bit obvious. Like you said, you know, Mm. it seems a bit obvious, go out and spend some time in, you know, green spaces, and it's good for you. But uh, when you actually look at the studies, you go, yeah, there's really something to it. And again, I think it's going to be a hugely exciting development, and I look forward to following it with great interest. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. We look forward to hearing more from you when you hit Melbourne a little bit later in the month. Thanks a lot. Hope to see you then. Good Weekend Talks is brought to you by the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Subscriptions power our newsrooms. To support independent journalism, search subscribe Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. If you'd like to read more about Michael Mosley, you can find a link to a story in The Age by Kerry O'Brien in the podcast show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Good Weekend Talks is produced by Julia Carcatzel. Technical assistance from Cormac Lally. Editing from Conrad Marshall. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. And Katrina Strickland is the editor of Good Weekend.